Thank you all so much for coming. You're here because you know uh, a bit or maybe a lot about the thought of Steven Pinker. I'm not going to recite his whole um, bibliography, but you know that he's been described uh, repeatedly as one of the most important intellectuals uh, of our time. Um, Stephen writes with a very strong sense, in my view, of someone conscious that they are blessed uh, in the secular sense of that word. Um, he was asked by the Financial Times last year how he'd rate his life so far out of 10. Uh, out of 10. And he said, given the possibilities for suffering and misfortune that come with being human, it would be an act of cosmic ingratitude for me to answer with anything less than 10. Uh, his Jewish grandparents emigrated from Poland and Moldova to Canada in 1926 on a journey that must have been absolutely exhausting at times, uh, but to which he owes his life. Um, his grandfather worked in a shirt factory, was made redundant, and set up a tie shop. His grandmother uh, used to be the boss of the seamstresses. This book is in many ways an attempt to reweave uh, the fabric of intellectual history. See what I did there? Um, uh, and though he doesn't mention his grandparents, I certainly felt I felt their presence uh, throughout. We're going to split this into three parts. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about, we're going to talk a bit about, well, it's mostly him is going to talk about the argument of the book and then the counter arguments and then uh, over to you guys. Um, Stephen, thank you for doing this. Um, the book has had a huge response. It's really cut through. It seems to me that there are two main propositions in it. One is that um, for most people, most of the time, in most places, life has got better, and that the, that is related to the Enlightenment. Let's unpack two of those. What evidence do you have that human flourishing is on the up? Pretty much any measure of human flourishing for which we have data over time shows an improvement. This first uh, became evident to me when I looked at statistics on violence, and, and uh, my previous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, had 100 graphs plotting rates of violence over time, showing, uh, to my surprise when I first came across them, that, that uh, rates of death in warfare have come down over seven decades, uh, rates of death in violent crime have come down over um, several centuries. Of course, uh, uh, chattel slavery was abolished, human sacrifice is a thing of the past, um, criminalization of homosexuality, rates of sexual assault, rates of child abuse, pretty much anything that you, that you measure uh, ha has come down at, over different time scales. This didn't all happen at once, but using the present as uh, an anchor and, and looking backwards, uh, it used to be worse. Uh, that uh, led me to some curiosity about other measures of human uh, well-being, life, education, uh, leisure, um, uh, ability to afford the necessities and luxuries of life. And uh, there too, to, uh, I'd have to admit to my surprise, uh, we see evidence for improvement on any, just about anything that you can plot over, over time. Because a lot of people have a strong feeling, even if they have a sense that in parts of the world things have got better, um, that for them or people they know things have got worse. How universal is this improvement in human flourishing? Well, it is. Um, uh, most of these data are uh, global, um, not all, because uh, the United States and Britain are better at record keeping and have records that go back farther than, than, uh, than a lot of countries. So when it comes to, say, deaths and traffic accidents over the past century, um, I just don't think there are data for Cameroon, for example, but, but there are for the United States. But uh, rates of death and warfare, uh, where there, there uh, are organizations that do their best to measure it globally with a constant yardstick. 
um, longevity, literacy, education, infectious disease, and, and so on. The, uh, perhaps the, the most pleasant surprise is that the, that the improvements globally, including in the, uh, what used to be called the third world or the developing world or poor countries, there the improvements have been most dramatic. Uh, and so that many uh, uh, poor countries now have vital statistics that are better than those in, uh, of the West just uh, 80 or 90 years ago. Okay. So. And is this arc of history, which um, you describe as progress, is it mostly to do with the reduction in human suffering, so less infant mortality, less um, mothers dying in childbirth, or is it an increase in what sort of Aristotle would call eudaimonia, human flourishing? I think it's both. Now, you have to have the reduction in suffering before you start to enjoy the, the higher callings. But if we look, certainly literacy and uh, basic education uh, have increased globally. Uh, access to uh, knowledge and culture via, most dramatically via smartphones, opportunities to travel, uh, how much beer is consumed, that's an important uh, marker, yeah. Um, <laughs> undernourishment and, um, uh, uh, well, I guess that, that could be on the, more on the, the uh, uh, suffering uh, end. Although, if all we did was eliminate suffering, that would be, and, and, and privation and uh, um, misery and danger and uh, disease, well, then at least you have the possibility of pursuing the higher uh, callings, which, which you don't if you're uh, enslaved, um, uh, a refugee, illiterate, hungry, diseased, and so on. But yeah, I think the, the, um, the eudaimonia and happiness, I, uh, which is uh, of course a big component of eudaimonia, uh, has not increased everywhere. It's actually gone down in the United States a bit, although the United States started at a pretty high level. But in a majority of countries for which we have data over time, um, happiness has increased. And I mean, the book's really in two halves. The first half, the first half is, um, is, uh, is very uh, data heavy, lots and lots of graphs showing some of the evidence for what you suggest. And the second half pins that uh, change, that progress on uh, the Enlightenment. Um, and that's been uh, the subject of a lot of the responses to the book. Um, what is the Enlightenment? Yes, so actually it's, it's not so much that I credit these changes to a bunch of guys who wrote books in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, quite the contrary, it's really the, uh, I, I, I use the Enlightenment as a rubric for the four ideals that are enumerated in the subtitle, namely reason, science, humanism, and progress. Uh, and it's, the book is the case for those four uh, ideals. I needed a uh, catchier label than, than the list of four, and I could have called it secular humanism now, or cosmopolitan liberalism now, <laughs> but there is a, a, a widespread use of the term enlightenment as a general uh, uh, label for that cluster of values. Uh, but I make it very clear that this is, if anyone interpreted the book, and some people have, as let's go back to these secular prophets, let's parse their words, let's adhere to their, their creed. Uh, let's credit them for everything that's, good, that's happened ever since. That, that was not the point of using the word enlightenment in the title. The, the, um, although they do, many of them do deserve credit for a lot of these uh, beneficial ideas and developments. It was an extraordinarily fertile time. But there is no such thing as the enlightenment creed. Uh, there, there were no opening and closing ceremonies. 
there was no um, you know, membership criteria, or no one could have been a card-carrying member of the Enlightenment in the sense of being accepted to the, to the club. And, and, uh, but, it, but I do defend the idea that, uh, that, that humanism is the most defensible moral system, that science is the most reliable means of understanding the world, and that we can't talk about uh, anything unless we are committed to reason. Okay, so we'll come back to some of the things that followed the Enlightenment, but let's just stick with it for the time being. Was the Enlightenment a scientific or a moral revolution? Well, uh, both. Uh, that is, the, <coughs> the, the moral revolution or moral you know, ferment uh, were, uh, consisted of a number of uh, explicit philosophies of morality that were grounded not in uh, divine dictates, not in commandments, not in scripture, but in, in, uh, in, in human flourishing, one form or another. If you're a utilitarian, then you frame it as the greatest good for the greatest number. If you're a, a Kantian deontologist, it's treat people as ends, not means. <clears throat> but has nothing to do with, with God or scriptures or uh, Jesus or heaven or hell. These are all justifications for morality that depend on what makes people better, better or worse off in, in <laughs> and, and they disagree over the best statement, but that, that's the core. But also scientific in the sense that, um, in, in what I consider to be the best sense of science, namely trying to explain things, that is not just accepting that uh, it's that way because it has to be that way, it always was that way, couldn't be any other way, but rather looking for some deeper set of principles that explain the surface phenomena we observe. and. Uh, subjecting those candidate explanations to empirical testing, to trying to allow the world to tell you which of those ideas is wrong. But the reason I, I ask if it's a scientific or moral revolution is because I wonder if there's a sort of tension within your case for the Enlightenment between two different kinds of knowledge. One which is material knowledge or science, which by our common effort grows, and once it's gained, it's quite hard to lose it. And another is moral knowledge. So the things that you're talking about, the improvements, and we'll come back to some of the, the data around the improvements in the reduction of human suffering around the world. Isn't the thing about moral knowledge that once it's gained, it can quite easily be lost? So you have the work of science that's a patient, steady accumulation that makes life better for people, but then progress is something that doesn't necessarily grow in that teleological way and sometimes can be reversed. Uh, it, it can be reversed, and scientific knowledge uh, can, can be reversed. Uh, but there, there is, well, certainly the, often the scientific consensus can be uh, on a particular okay, issue yeah. can be overturned as, as new data come, come in. Uh, and there can be, on top of that, uh, irrational um, changes of mind because of fads and fashion in science. I mean, scientists themselves are not immune to various, various uh, foibles and fallacies. Uh, I mean, in my own field of psychology, for example, there is a, a newfound um, <coughs> appreciation of some of the um, traps of um, non-replicable results that gain the attention of journalists, sometimes based on questionable research practices. What have you got against journalists? <laughs> Nothing, I just wanted to stick up for but journalists. Going, going back to um, uh, whether there whether there's a, a, a kind of a cumulative nature to moral reasoning. There is some, although of course there's a lot of backsliding, but you don't get a lot of arguments justifying slavery anymore. But you did in the 19th century uh, and in the 18th century. Or an even more dramatic example is uh, human sacrifice. Uh, no one says uh, we ought to 
um, uh, achieve better weather uh, and, and uh, ward it off against crop failures or military defeat by throwing a virgin into a volcano. Now, you might say that that's actually a scientific uh, realization. But there is, uh, I think that was also pushed along by some notion that hum human life is precious. Likewise, um, tor pub torture uh, as a form of criminal punishment, of disemboweling, breaking on the wheel, uh, that was defended in its time as the only way you could strike uh, proper fear into the heart of hearts of malefactors. Again, we don't, we don't make that argument again uh, anymore. Uh, should uh, women be deprived of equal economic and rights or, the, or of the, the right to vote? Which is not to say that you can't find kooks in the cesspools of the uh, web or social media who, who, who may be advancing these. But even the most, what we consider the most retrograde political movements, they're not debating racial segregation or um, or taking away the, the, the vote from women or recriminalizing homosexuality. Though, of course, it, it, that does happen, and it has happened in, in some uh, African countries. Uh, but generally, there is, a, as I show in the book, there is a, a, there is a directionality to some moral questions. You mentioned a number of examples in the book of the great moral advances that science has achieved, but history is sometimes neglected, people who've come up with vaccinations. Let's have a few examples of the people that people in this room may not necessarily have heard of, but people who, by your estimation, have saved billions of lives. Well, a, a recent example would be Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution. Not completely obscure, he did win a Nobel Peace Prize, but still the majority of... I, I, um, <clears throat> teasingly began an article on the moral sense about 10 years ago by saying, which of the following is, mo is, the mo is most moral? Uh, Mother Teresa, Bill Gates, or Norman Borlaug? And that was just before it was public knowledge that Bill Gates had made the pivot from Microsoft to philanthropy. The example wouldn't work as well uh, today. Well, Bill but, Gates says on the front of your book, this is my new favorite book of all time. So well, maybe be... that's... <laughs> 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 So just be careful what you say about it, but yeah, 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 unless he's in the room, but yeah. Uh, but, uh, and, and I, I uh, you know, noted that Mother Teresa, who obviously was in, in many ways an admirable woman, but how, much, how many lives did she save? How many people did she really make better off? Uh, she ran a clinic with quite primitive medical facilities, uh, whereas Norman Borlaug is credited with saving uh, a billion lives. And probably, I, I think there are probably some people in the room who are thinking, who the hell is Norman Borlaug? So Norman Borlaug, and, and I, in, in my experience, many people have not heard of Norman Borlaug. So he was the, um, the, the, the parent of the Green Revolution in agronomy. He developed um, vigorous hybrids that combined a number of uh, traits crossbred from different varieties that uh, didn't waste a lot of biomass on tall stalks that uh, uh, ripened sooner, that were more naturally resistant to various kinds of pests, and responsible for the fact that countries that used to be uh, uh, re sites of regular famines, including uh, India and Bangladesh and Indonesia and Mexico, uh, became food exporters in, uh, within a decade after they adopted his uh, varieties. So he's an example. Um, the uh, uh, Semmelweis, the discoverer of uh, antisepsis, and around shortly afterwards, Joseph Lister, who I believe may be known for, he may have given his name to Listerine, uh, but discovered that uh, carbolic acid and, and, and practices like hand washing could result in deaths in hospitals uh, plummeting. Uh, Bosch and Haber, who invented synthetic fertilizer, or, uh, 
the, a mixed legacy because uh, I think it was uh, Haber who also worked on uh, poison gas for the Germans during World War I. Uh, but, um, so he, uh, he wasn't a completely, didn't have a completely moral heart by today's standards, but if you were to judge him by uh, utilitarian standards, he is credited with saving billions of lives. Why is there this sort of strange deficit or this strange sort of gap in our culture where scientists who, by their extraordinary labor, don't necessarily achieve the recognition in their lifetime that their extraordinary work achieves over a great deal of time? So see, you mentioned approvingly C.P. Snow, who's an important English intellectual, wrote a, um, one famous essay among many called Two Cultures, and he, he wrote this, I think, in the 1950s, um, late 50s perhaps, where he talked about um, the fact that it's expected of scientists that they should have literary references, you know, they should know their Hamlet from their Macbeth. But if you ask a lot of Nobel laureates in literature to say what the second law of thermodynamics is, they wouldn't necessarily know what it was. Why is there this sort of generalized, this, this acceptance of the fact that people will know less about science? Is it just because science is hard? Uh, it, it may be, but it may also be, uh, this is <coughs> almost anything you can say about this topic will get you in trouble or will get me in trouble. Right. But I'll, uh, we are live streaming this, I think, somewhere, so that's right. go for it. <coughs> there is a, um, so, uh, Snow referred to prestige hierarchies among the, the uh, British um, literary intelligentsia, where it would just be a, um, an intolerable shame to not have heard of William Shakespeare, for example. Uh, whereas, indeed, you could be perfectly respectable and say, well, I'd, uh, while denying that you've ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics. So part of it is the psychology of status and prestige. And I'll allude you know, a little bit cheekily to Thorstein Veblen's um, the theory of the leisure class, which I think remains one of the best analyses of the, uh, the sociology and psychology of status, where he was the one who came up with the term that has passed into the language of conspicuous consumption, uh, conspicuous leisure, conspicuous waste. Uh, and he, he noted that if you are wealthy and high enough in status that you could can um, uh, throw away wealth on um, on, on, on frivolities, on um, uh, things that no one actually needs. And in fact, things that are downright useless, like fine fabrics and um, uh, expensive uh, ornaments, uh, that that is uh, what economists call a, a costly signal. That is, is an honest indicator of your, your status and your wealth. And he said that that is why, at least in the traditional um, uh, upper classes, there, uh, there's a living a life of, of, uh, of um, uh, futility, is, uh, that is having the leisure to fritter away your time on uh, uh, kind of a, maybe a bit of a Bertie Worcester uh, image, uh, actually gains you status. And I think in, in, in universities, often the most recondite subjects are the ones that get the most prestige, at that whether you have the superstar professors, the named chairs, in things like uh, literary criticism that no one can understand, but also in, uh, you know, in, in a lot of, also it must be added in a lot of theoretical physics and uh, the most abstract and, and uh, um, uh, unapplicable realms of mathematics. Whereas irrelevant about, crap is what you're saying. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Uh, so ir irrelevant crap gives you high, high status because it's difficult to attain. Uh, but think about, say, a professor of, um, dental epidemiology. Uh, vitally important to, to human health and happiness, but they aren't the academic superstars. 
Um, you, so you might think, you know, why not? Well, everyone knows that you need, you know, keep your teeth clean. Uh, you know, where's the, how hard could that be? Exactly. Let's go back to the global picture that you, um, you depict over the last uh, couple of hundred years. You talk about what's happened to wealth and there's a, you write extensively about inequality. Before we come on to sort of the relative merits of inequality or poverty, could you just give us an overview, the over, uh, sort of an oversight of how wealth has grown, especially in the poor world over the last couple of centuries? Yes, yeah, so by the, um, uh, the, today's standard criterion for extreme poverty, of course, any cutoff for extreme poverty is bound to be uh, arbitrary, but whichever criterion you pick, then at least you can keep it constant over time and use it as a, a constant yardstick to even address the question, has the world gotten richer or poorer? So the, the conventional definition now is uh, $1.90 per person per day in 2015 U.S. Uh, dollars adjusted for uh, purchasing uh, power. But that criterion, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty 200 years ago, and 9% does today. Uh, most of the reduction having taken place in the last 30 years. After, in a book of astonishing stats, um, the one that jumped out most to me was that <clears throat> if you said the news was fair, journalists would have reported that every day for the last 25 years, 135,000 people have left absolute poverty. Yes, and, uh, and a, a, a wisecrack I owe to Max Roser, but, but yes, very telling. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but then, but since uh, it didn't all happen on a particular Thursday in October, it never made the news with the result that a, a, more than a billion people have escaped from extreme poverty and no one knows about it. And in fact, as uh, Hans and Ola and Anna Rosling have, have shown, in um, surveys where you ask people, has uh, extreme poverty increased, decreased, or stayed the same? A majority of people say it's increased. A uh, large chunk of people say it stayed the same. 5% of people give the correct answer, namely that it's decreased. And as they uh, uh, whimsically put it, if you were to write the answers on bananas and uh, give them to a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee would do better than uh, even many of the experts because the chimpanzee would pick at random, whereas people are systematically uh, too pessimistic largely because of biases that we're going to get into. Just sticking with um, inequality, you argue that what matters most is not a measure of relative wealth, which is what inequality is, but <clears throat> the absolute wealth of the poor, in other words, poverty. Why is poverty a better target for policymakers than inequality? Well, because uh, there's a moral argument that's been made by uh, Harry Frankfurt and Derek Parfit and others, but, but it could be made in terms of common sense. If um, Bill Gates has a very big house or a very, very big house or a very, 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 very big house, it doesn't make me any better or worse off by that, that very fact, and it certainly doesn't, uh, uh, it should be of cold comfort to someone whose child has died, who's hungry, who's diseased. Uh, the moral case is not that everyone get the same. The moral case is that everyone have a, have a good life. Now, it, it, it may be that one of the roots to improving the lot of the poor is to have uh, progressive taxation, which as a byproduct may, will affect the rich more than the poor. It may increase uh, economic equality, but that would be a byproduct. It's not inherently valuable that uh, people earn the same. What is inherently valuable is that people get to enjoy life. Yeah. Um, and uh, though while it, <coughs> it sometimes is true that, that uh, redistribution in the form of graduated taxes is a, a route to uh, bringing up the, the bottom, but there's, we also know that the 
because wealth is not zero sum, which is the, uh, a common uh, fallacious way of thinking about, uh, about wealth and its distribution. It's not the fact that there is a constant lump of good stuff that is divided such that if some people get more, other people get less. The amount of wealth varies uh, enormously. And the uh, enormous reduction in global poverty of the last 30 years has not come from a massive program of taxation or flow from north to south or e e for, of west to east. It's come because countries like uh, India and China and Indonesia have uh, created more wealth. They've industrialized, they've gone to market economies, uh, and they've created wealth where it did not exist before. It wasn't a matter of redistribution. But one of the things that you do accept in the book, which I have to say I think some of your critics um, unfairly targeted you for, is you accept that progress has been uneven, that there are people, the arc of history may bend towards justice or whatever, um, however you want to put it, but progress and the gains can be unevenly distributed. Oh, they're, they're always unevenly distributed. I mean, if, if they were evenly distributed, I mean, that would be a miracle. How could that possibly happen? Uh, and, and indeed, in, together with progress, there are parts of the world, there are uh, sectors of the population, uh, there are times where th things get worse. How could they not? I think there is a, a widespread misconception that of progress perhaps uh, rooted in 19th century romantic notions of dialectics and arcs and destinies, of progress as some mystical force that just lifts every, everything upward. And that, uh, you know, as a, certainly as someone with a scientific mindset, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm, scientists are rather abstemious about forces, cosmic forces. I mean, there, there is gravitation, there's electromagnetism. There isn't a force called progress. Uh, quite the contrary, the universe doesn't care about us, and since there's so many more ways for things to go wrong than to go right, the default is things get worse. Um, and so it's no mystery that there are regressions, that there's suffering, that, that there's poverty. Poverty doesn't even need an explanation. Poverty is just how we came into the world. Uh, what accounts for progress is uh, efforts to improve human well-being and the application of knowledge that, uh, that, that brings about those, that goal. It's a goal. struggle, isn't it? It's always a struggle, yeah. And it'll never be, it couldn't possibly be uniform. I want to interrogate your case for reason, progress. Um, God, I'm talking like an American, progress, progress, uh, and uh, humanism in a minute. Before that, what I really want to try and explain um, and get into is not just why the book has um, elicited such a strong uh, reaction, which it has, but why there seems to be such a disjuncture between how many, many people feel and the case you're making. What explains that 5%? Is it the sort of cognitive biases, uh, the fallible reason, the, um, the availability heuristic? What is it about how we um, feel and interpret the world that makes us, uh, makes many people feel like the data you're presenting seem anomalous or can't possibly be true? Yes, uh, some, some of it does come from a, uh, an interaction between <coughs> the availability bias and human cognition, namely that we um, judge prevalence or risk or probability using our brain's search engine as a, as a, as a shortcut. Namely, the more easily we can think of examples, the more common we judge something to be. And since <clears throat> the nature of journalism is to report uh, incidents, events, uh, as long what does happen rather than what doesn't. As long as bad things don't vanish from the face of the earth, which they never will, they, there'll always be enough to report on the news, and so the news will actually look identical 
whether the uh, number of ongoing wars is uh, 50 of them or three of them, because three is enough to, to have heart-rending images, and, and obviously they, they ought to be reported. It's not that they shouldn't be reported, but if they're reported out of the context of an overall count uh, of proportions of, of data, then we can have a misleading impression of the world. So I think that, that is one reason, that, that that mixture of cognition and journalism. Another is there is a, uh, we, we worry, we have, there's a, a negativity bias to human cognition, uh, human psychology, I should say, that, that uh, we, we think about and uh, dread bad things more than we savor good things. But then there's also a, um, there, there are market forces in the uh, kind of intelligentsia, journalism, academic market for profits, where um, uh, pessimism sounds, sounds serious. There's some gravitas to saying these are end times, we're on the brink of a crisis, uh, things have never been worse. Uh, whereas optimism sounds uh, kind of frivolous. It sounds like, well, you might, it sounds naive, even when, even when backed by data. But you see, that's the, that's the bad case. That's the case against news, which and I've thought very long and hard about um, why so much news is negative over the course of my career. I wonder if there's a defense of journalism from the argument you make, though, which is that bad stuff is the stuff that deserves scrutiny. Good events, if a scientist makes an extraordinary discovery, that's the sort of thing that might uh, require recognition and ought to be given its proportionate due. But it's the bad stuff that goes on. It's when politicians screw up or when something goes wrong or where there's some terrible accident. That's what deserves scrutiny. And if one function of journalism is to apply scrutiny, especially of those in power, isn't it inevitable that quite often journalism will focus on the bad stuff, even if that gives us a warped perception of the uh, astonishing gains that mankind and humankind is making? Uh, I think up to a point, and there, there couldn't possibly be an argument that, that uh, journalism should ignore the things that go wrong. I mean, how would we know that things went wrong unless journalists reported them and scrutinized them and held politicians' feet to the fire and, and all of that? But if it's not done in the context of also noting when things uh, work, when policies are successful, when bad things are reduced, it can lead to a kind of, I think, quite a, a destructive, uh, corrosive fatalism that um, all politicians are, are, are corrupt, they're no good, they're, they're, uh, they're arrogant, they're idiots, our well, institutions are failing. Oh, well, some, some, some maybe. <laughs> Although, you know, as a psychologist, I always have to remember the, the, some, what we, in, in intro courses, they call the fundamental attribution error, which is that we always assume that, that behavior is a product of people's characters, whereas very often, anyone in that position would force to act under those constraints would, would kind of do this, something similar. And, uh, um, uh, you know, and I think a lot of, uh, you know, I'm not a, hu a huge fan of politicians, but you know, they have a really tough job. And it's not clear that I would be that much better if I, if I was there, but we all have the, the illusion that, that we would be. But, but just I know you're all thinking about Brexit right now. Yes. Even I know. I've worked for the BBC, I've got to be impartial. But, but going back to the, um, but to your question, so I think that if there is, if, uh, if journalism becomes um, biased in its negativity, if the successes are, are just submerged and no one can uh, learn about them, then you can have the, the fatalism. Why are we even bothering making the world a better place? Why do we even bother reforming things, um, dealing with climate change, dealing with disarmament, de dealing with uh, poverty? if uh, things are spiraling down, downward no matter what people do, and it can lead to a kind of radicalism. Well, 
things couldn't be worse. Let's just smash the machine. Let's destroy our institutions because anything that rises out of the rubble is bound to be better than the disaster that we have now. Now, of course, history, not just history, but even a comparison of uh, countries across the world shows that things can be a lot, lot worse than they are now. Exactly. And uh, we really do have to keep in perspective that problems are inevitable and uh, we, we could do better, but that some countries are better than others, some policies are better than others, some things uh, that do, do work. Let's talk about the case for reason. Um, it's really one of the fault lines in intellectual history between people who think of themselves on the left or those who think on, on the, of themselves on the right, whether or not they believe that reason is a good guide to human behavior. And Michael Oakeshott, who's a very important conservative philosopher of the 20th century, um, wrote uh, an important book called Rationalism in Politics, which is really a, a sustained attack on reason. And he wrote in that moral ideals are not in the first place the products of reflective thought. They're the products of human behavior to which reflective thought gives subsequent abstract and partial expression in words. And his argument was that reason was a poor guide to human behavior and that if you focus so much on reason, you're not really gonna understand humanity. Why do you venerate reason? Well, if, if he were there, I would say, is what you just said reasonable? Uh, is it rational? Can you defend it? Are there arguments for it? Is it true? And if he says, well, no, there's no such thing as reason, then I would say, okay, bye, we're done. Uh, if he was to say, well, yes, here are the reasons why what I just said is, uh, why, why you should believe it, I'd say, aha, you've just conceded uh, the, the point. You can't escape reason. If you are debating, evaluating, discussing. If you're fighting, of course, then reason has nothing to do with it. If you have a, a beauty contest, then, then reason does But as long as you're debating anything, including the role of reason, you have already signed on to reason. But People it's possible to grant that at the same time as you say reason is unstable, that, some, that reason is slave to the passions, as the, uh, the Hobbesian phrase has it, or even that as more kind of recent work in behavioral economics has suggested, People like Tversky and Kahneman, his bestseller Thinking Fast and Slow, a lot of people in this room will know, that basically our brains are made up of two parts. There's a system one, which is the fast bit, which is emotional and passionate, and then reason is reflective and slow. And actually we're much more guided by the parts of us, by the animate parts of us. I'm saying this to someone who's studied evolution and written lots of books about it, but we're guided by the parts of us that are animalistic and evolutionary rather than reasonable. Yes. No, I, so I think I, I hear that argument a lot because it comes from my own tribe, cognitive psychologists like Tversky and Kahneman. But I, I think it, it, it um, blurs together two completely different questions. One of them is, are humans um, uh, acting by their unaided intuitions rational and reasonable? The answer is mostly not. The other is, uh, ought we to uh, be as rational as, uh, as we can? Uh, should we... Uh, uh, extol virtue, strive, uh, extol reason, strive for reason in uh, making collective decisions, which is a, a normative or an ethical or a philosophical issue, which is separate from the empirical psychological issue of how does, how do, what makes homo sapiens tick. Now, it can't be true, even though I, I teach, I accept, I write about the findings from cognitive psychology on human illusions and cognitive illusions and biases, it cannot be the case that humans are incapable of reason. Because if it is, how could you make the, that argument in the first place? You uh, use reason to undermine reason. Yeah, yes, and what is the benchmark of reason against which you're comparing the person on the street and saying the ordinary schmo uh, is not very rational? Well, what is rationality such that he or she isn't doing it? So th I think the resolution to that, I don't think, I don't think it's a paradox. We obviously do have a, a capacity for, for reason, which we don't 
always or effortlessly exercise, but, but uh, in the kind of society in which we evolved, the uh, uh, foraging or hunter-gatherer hunt, uh, niche, there's a, a lot of reasoning going on, even in, in something like figuring out the uh, whereabouts of the species of an animal from its tracks, or uh, figuring out how to uh, extract a poison from, from a plant. You couldn't well, do that out of... The Kalahari. Yes, and I have uh, anecdotes of something very much like scientific reasoning, including skepticism of authority, uh, demand for empirical proof. Um, uh, in uh, Kalahari San uh, Bushman, as they used to be called. So we do have that kernel. The question is, how do we um, scale it up? And, and the answer is, and this is not completely uh, since the, the Enlightenment, because the, 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 uh, the Greeks and people at various other times uh, also thought about this, but how do we maximize that? What are the rules of the game that make us collectively more rational than any of us are individually? And we're coming to appreciate what they are. They're things like free speech, so uh, you, you, you get to be criticized, uh, open debate, empirical testing, uh, formalizing reason through logic and mathematics, um, freedom of the press, uh, mechanisms of pooling knowledge gained by different uh, agents, uh, all of which give us the edifice of science and journalism and, and, and mathematics and philosophy, by which we can then say, well, how rational are people without those institutions? There's a wonderful line from uh, me and my dad's hero, Bertrand Russell, in his collection, Skeptical Essays, where he says, reason may be a small force, but it is constant and works always in one direction, whereas the forces of unreason destroy one another in futile strife. So if, you, if, we, if we agree that using reason to attack reason is a bit um, futile, I wonder if you're, um, you might accept that there is an inherent tension in your argument about progress, which is that you might accept that progress since the Enlightenment, partly because of the ideas of the Enlightenment, has been remarkable. Fewer people are suffering, there are fewer deaths, there are fewer infant mortalities, there's more human flourishing going on. But isn't it possible to accept that at the same time as you say, what the Enlightenment unleashed in terms of scientific knowledge may very quickly bring an abrupt end to our progress? The most obvious example of that is climate change. Um, uh, there might be cyber warfare, there might be biological warfare. Isn't it possible that progress has been remarkable uh, over the last two centuries, but based on ideas which could now end progress for all of us very, very quickly? Uh, they could, and I have a chapter on existential threats in the book. Uh, I think some of them are exaggerated, such as artificial intelligence taking over and enslaving us or reducing us to raw materials. I think there is a kind of a new parlor game among um, many um, scientists uh, to try to think up as many exotic ways in which the species could end as possible, which I think reaches diminishing returns, uh, both in terms <laughs> of plausibility and, and in terms of its effects of convincing people, well, one way or another we're doomed, so let's just enjoy life while, while we can. Uh, there are the ones, though, that we, we uh, ought to take seriously. Uh, and I talk, give a, a lot of discussion to climate change and the threat of nuclear war. And, and I think we should treat those as uh, problems to be solved that are not yet solved, um, rather than uh, apocalypses in waiting. Also, I should add, and this is following an observation by David Deutsch, there, there, are, there were existential threats in the past that we no longer uh, have to worry about, such as uh, pandemics and famines and even a uh, collision with an asteroid, which we could probably avert now if we uh, spotted one. Uh, so there, uh, 
there, in terms of overall safety, while we don't, can't really map out the tails of the distribution of risks, um, there's an awful lot that were kind of far out there that, that have now been reeled in because of the, the growth of knowledge. But the sorts of um, victories for human um, flourishing and reductions for human suffering that Norman Borlaug might have created uh, came about because of excellent policy and collective struggle. Do you get the sense that right now, in, for instance, climate change, the sorts of consensual policymaking that's necessary is actually happening? Yes. Okay. Not, no, no. I mean, not enough. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it is a, a, a continuing battle, including one that I, I myself try to prosecute as much as I can toward of trying to map out um, how doing the math can we actually get to a decarbonized economy, taking into account the fact that people aren't going to give up an energy-intensive lifestyle, uh, that they, the option of going back to uh, kind of undoing the Industrial Revolution and going back to harmony with nature is not going to happen, P uh, together with the fact that people in poor countries want to and deserve to become rich, and, or you know, rich in the sense of uh, the developed world, and to do that, they're going to need a lot of energy. Uh, and the, so the challenge is, how are we going to get that energy without um, uh, bringing about possibly catastrophic consequences through greenhouse gases. And is your sense, as you survey what's going on um, in parts of the Western world, the rise of populism in particular, that some of the moral progress, for instance, in treatment of foreigners, some of the moral progress that you characterize as, um, as worth celebrating over the last 200 years, do you sense that that too has gone in reverse? Um, uh, locally, uh, here and there, um, there, there, there is definitely pushback, as there always is. And I, I, I certainly distinguish Enlightenment ideals from Western ideals. The West itself has never gone all, all in for the, for, uh, the Enlightenment. There was a counter-Enlightenment uh, as soon as the Enlightenment itself unfolded. There have been very influential uh, movements in the West towards nationalism and militarism and uh, 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 romanticism. Uh, and, of course, many of the ideas that we associate with the European Enlightenment were independently uh, some, and were sometimes only um, discovered in, in non-Western cultures, non-violence, uh, restorative justice. But uh, with authoritarian populism in particular, there's no question that it is a counter-enlightenment movement uh, and uh, that sometimes there's a, a literal chain of influence. I mean, it's, it sounds oxymoronic to talk about the intellectual roots of Donald Trump. Um, and there, there probably are none, yeah. but there are uh, intellectual roots of his, uh, his, his advisors, his speechwriters, people like Steve Bannon and Michael Anton and Steve Miller. Um, they, were, they, con they consider themselves intellectuals. They cite sources of, of um, often you know, crackpot uh, fascist theoreticians and philosophers. Some of them not crackpots. Uh, um, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, is, a, is a hero of the American alt-right for example, um, and these were, were, were not Enlightenment thinkers in the sense of, of uh, humanists. Uh, so there is, uh, there is that pushback, there is, um, uh, and, and, and I do argue in the book that these are real threats to progress on a number of fronts. For example, uh, the decline of war was in part a gift of, the, uh, of robust international uh, organizations and norms, you know, like, like the United Nations, like the um, the enmeshing of different subsets of countries in various treaties and organizations and 
unions, won't say anything else about that. Uh, and that to the extent there's a retreat from the, those organizations of global cooperation, there, there, there can be backsliding and we'll need even more robust ones uh, to deal with global threats like cyber sabotage, like uh, climate change. The Paris Climate Accords, uh, possibly undermined by the, um, Trump's decision to withdraw the United States in, uh, in three years, uh, two years, uh, and even if they were followed to the letter, are not going to be sufficient to address climate change. But I think they were an enormous step. They were an enormous uh, precedent. And they show that global cooperation is certainly possible, but, but will require a lot more energy. You mentioned both humanism and Nietzsche. Of course, it was Nietzsche who through his blindness said, God is dead. Here's my question for you about humanism. If humanism is so great, why is it not caught on? Oh, it actually has, although not under that uh, label. So for example, um, most of uh, the, most institutions are um, uh, in the West and globally are, are, are in effect humanist in that they, their goal is human well-being rather than say a, um, a scripture. Uh, so the United Nations is a, at least in theory is a humanist organization, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the um, uh, sustainable development goals agreed to by all 192 nations, that those goals are not uh, everyone should accept Jesus Christ as their savior, or, uh, but rather let Human reduce, flourishing is a good thing to aim at. Yeah. Uh, hospitals, universities, most charities, and most of them have, even if they retain their uh, legacy of their origin, often in religious or nationalist organizations, you look at the way the mission statements have changed over the years and they've become uh, uh, essentially humanist. Were you ever religious? Um, I was, uh, like, like many Reformed Jews, I, was, um, I observed many of the traditions and um, I don't think, I, I can't remember really believing in, in, uh, in God. So, uh, like most children, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, and, but uh, I don't, so I didn't have any crisis or sudden loss, loss of, uh, of, of faith. And, but I wonder if you'd grant some of what um, some of your critics say, which is that the evidence of history may be, um, and I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but that religion can answer enduring human needs in a way that humanism has struggled to. For instance, the idea of the sacred, which is something which is a sort of strange sediment in the human imagination, but is, a, is, is taken from religious thought. The idea of the transcendent, which is something that has given great meaning to many people's lives over millennia. The idea of communal piety. Aren't these ideas which um, religion has over the Enlightenment, uh, which the Enlightenment was to some extent a repudiation of, because it was a repudiation of the faith uh, that, under, uh, that, that underpinned it, and the fact is religion has proved remarkably stubborn. Despite the Enlightenment ideals that you mentioned, these ideas of religion seem to be still with us, and if anything, winning. So, yeah, so I, I do deal with that in the chapter on humanism. So there are two questions. One of them, is religion really winning? The answer is, the reason that it's winning is that religious people have more babies. They have more unprotected sex. And so, uh, this is true in Judaism, it's true in Christianity, it's true in Islam. In, uh, a universal of religions is the more uh, devout you are, the more babies you have. And so, yes, the number of religious people is increasing. However, uh, when people change, they change, generally they change in the, in the direction of secularism, of, of, uh, of atheism. That's the, the direction. Uh, and 
that the, if you <coughs> look at the, uh, the um, fastest growing uh, religions, they are no religion at all, both uh, in terms of um, just worldwide, there are more people with no religion than there are Hindus or Jews or uh, uh, just about anything but, but Islam and, and uh, Christianity. And it's a particularly steep uh, generational gradient. The younger the cohort, the less uh, religious they are. But that can be, uh, in terms of sheer numbers, that can be overwhelmed by fecundity. Although that itself may or may not change because as people get more urban, as they get more educated, as they get more affluent, and as women become more, more empowered, then uh, fertility goes down. Uh, and that happens in, in, in religious communities as well as secular ones. So um, the other illusion that religion is ascendant comes from the fact that uh, organized religion is organized, and uh, many religious sects, particularly in the United States, uh, turn out to vote and they vote in lockstep. They vote for Donald Trump. They vote for the more conservative uh, party. And so they have an outsized uh, political influence, whereas a lot of um, atheist secularists, nuns, uh, N-O-N-E, um, stay home on election day, partly because they may be disengaged from institutions of all kinds, not only their local church, but from politics and, and civil society. The first part of your question, do people need some of the things that religions traditionally offer. Well, to the extent, uh, extent that they do, uh, we ought to preserve those features of experience, but that doesn't mean that we should believe supernatural um, uh, propositions that are, that are not true. So has, hasn't humanism struggled to do that? That's exactly the case. Isn't it the case that it's required that sense of transcendent belief, that sense of the sacred and the profane, and, and humanism has struggled to make people come together in vast congregations, hasn't it? Yeah, there, it is true that humanist organizations in which, uh, which I'm active don't have uh, the equivalent of megachurches uh, uh, or um, um, big sanctuaries. And uh, they, we do have notions of transcendence in the sense that the cosmos is vaster than we can conceive, uh, that uh, time is, uh, you know, ironically, the sense of transcendence that we get from the scientific worldview, namely that the universe is 13 billion years old, is really more, ought to be more awe-inspiring than the notion that the world was created 5,000 years ago on this dinky little planet compared to 100 billion galaxies. Um, so there is a sense of transcendent from, of, of, of logic, of mathematics, of morality, of, uh, of number that can uh, sort of overwhelm any puny individual. We have a sense that certain things are sacred. Life is, is, uh, is sacred. We, don't, uh, we try not to uh, calculate whose life is worth more than whose other uh, life. Uh, and a lot of our laws and customs uh, do have some notion of, of sacredness. Uh, that, I don't think that all forms of transcendence and um, that vague spiritual feeling that, um, that the universe is personal, that everything happens for a reason, that there are no coincidences, that uh, somehow the universe cares about me. It's two people, that, that those are seductive ideas and I think they're bad ideas. Uh, superstition. They're, they're, they're superstition and they can only lead to, to, to bad outcomes. So that's a component of religious belief that I, I don't think we should particularly cherish. And, in terms of what people need, the data on, uh, on societies that, that, uh, that flourish, 
pretty good places to live, like, like northern, northern Europe. Uh, they tend to be the most secular societies, and, and a lot of people seem to be doing, uh, doing just fine in them. Whereas the most religious parts of the world are hellholes. Uh, these are, the, are parts of the world that are often racked by uh, war, by poverty, by terrorism. Let's open it up to questions. I should say as well that there's, um, uh, there's some roving mics, and Stephen is going to be signing books uh, afterwards. I mean, you should buy this book not just because it's fantastic, but because if you buy a copy, you're supporting Newham Bookshop, which is an independent store um, run by Vivian and Bob, who are heroic people. Um, let's take that question in the middle there. Oh, there's, well, let's go take, take a question there first of all, and then we'll go to the gentleman there with his hand up. Over there, yeah, I can't quite see because of the spotlight, so just shout. Um, I have a question regarding um, what you first mentioned about the statistics on violence and the link to power. Um, doesn't it, if we look at progress from a statistical point of view, doesn't it obscure the fact that maybe power has taken a different form or maybe that advanced societies have exported violence to other countries? And I can't help but remembering Michel Foucault when he talks, when I think if I quote correctly, he says the exercise of power, um, it now, um, it's kind of, that doesn't take into account the threat of death, but rather how it kind of control, controls people's lives. And that's relevant to the words of Shoshana Zuboff, who had a talk here last month when she was talking about her book, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And one of the things, the first question she asked, why are people here? And one of the words that most people use is fear, that people are afraid of how companies are using digital architecture. As a, as a Trojan horse to control people's behavior in the today's modern world. Basically, to sum it up, um, are these numbers, like the decline in death, is it relevant still in a, day, in a world where, por where power has a different form, not necessarily by war or death? Thank you. Yeah, that's relevant. If you don't get killed, that makes a big difference. Uh, <laughs> if you're not thrown in jail for criticizing the prime minister, that makes a big difference. Uh, there is, so the fact that Michel Foucault said something does not mean that it's true. Uh, uh, because I, I often get questions, well, Foucault says, well, yeah, Foucault says, but, uh, but Foucault has to defend his beliefs and I don't think he does very well. Uh, there is a fa fantastic increase in freedom um, that the, uh, the, the freedom that we have in the UK and the US to criticize um, institutions to criticize politicians and not we don't unlike many parts of the world we don't have to worry about being uh, thrown in jail uh, the fact that people live life uh, a diversity of lifestyles that they couldn't that people uh, uh, change uh, genders they uh, fall into genders that are not just uh, male or female but are there are 12 or 13 of them uh, that the diversity in dress and in, in uh, hairstyle and in diet and in lifestyle is just uh, fantastic. So they're uh, on top of the fact that, uh, that the most important thing is that you actually get to live instead of uh, being killed or, uh, or being uh, thrown in jail supersedes all else. When you look at all else, the, the amount of freedom that, that, uh, that, that we enjoy today, at least in, in many countries, is, uh, is enormous. And the, uh, the, the data on violence don't just pertain to the West, but they are, um, 
but they pertain to, many of them are, are true of global averages, such as the worldwide rate of death in warfare. That has come down not just in Europe and, uh, and America, but in Asia, which, used to, which had decades of horrific wars, Vietnam War, the uh, Korean War, Chinese Civil War, all, uh, there's not been a war in Asia in, uh, for, for many decades. Latin America, in fact, the entire Western Hemisphere, uh, with the end of the Colombian Civil War, uh, is an entire hemisphere is entirely free of war for the first time uh, in history. So the, these changes are, um, uh, have, don't just involve the export of a constant amount of violence from one region to another, but the level across the entire planet has gone down. Okay, great. The gentleman there with, um, yeah, with the open neck shirt, and then we'll go to the man behind you, and we'll go to the back. Yeah. Thank you. Are you able to cite any examples of equivalence of the Green Revolution that could have happened but didn't happen because there weren't a Norman Borlaug there to, to make them happen? And can you characterize the adverse consequences for the world and for humankind that could have been avoided if those revolutions had taken place? Yes, yeah, so it's very hard to, uh, it, it's a hard question to answer because it's the, um, to think of the ideas that have not been thought of uh, would, would, would require a particular act of, of, uh, uh, of genius. But it is, I, I think, um, but seriously, uh, it, it could be that the, that the key insight to unlocking Alzheimer's disease uh, has just not been thought up yet, that, uh, that, that maybe some genius could have thought it up decades ago. Uh, and other um, infectious diseases. The, uh, it could have been that the uh, cocktail of, anti, of um, antiretrovirals that brought AIDS under control could have been thought of uh, uh, earlier. Um, so uh, undoubtedly there are, uh, although it's very hard to know what they are. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's just take this gentleman here and then we'll go to the back. So the gentleman here first and then we'll do a batch over here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to pick up on a comment you made earlier about uh, how the size of Bill Gates' mansion doesn't affect you, um, which is true, of course, in terms of absolute living standards. And, and another point you made about uh, you know, market economies not being a zero-sum game because the size of the pie is increasing. Now, while that's true, of course, um, there is a lot of research, particularly that presented by Wilson and Pickett in their book, The Spirit Level, showing that more unequal societies do worse on a range of outcomes, and not just the people at the bottom, even the people at the top, for example, have worse mental, physical health, uh, less good reported well-being, etc. So if we accept that is true, does it not seem then unrealistic to just tell people, well, listen, you have this pessimism bias, but actually, um, you know, you're fine because in absolute terms you're doing better. If at some level we are intensely social, intensely hierarchical primates who do feel distress from unequal societies and that this is an emergent property of the society and you can't just tell people that, well, you know, you're being irrational, your absolute standard of living has risen, so don't worry about Bill Gates. Yeah. So I, I do deal with the... the, the um Wilkinson and Pickett claim in the book, in the chapter on inequality, and it is, um, it, it is not as solid as most people think, and in fact, a number of more recent analyses um, have suggested that, it, that it's wrong, that if you, because there are a lot of economically egalitarian societies like Norway and Denmark, they're also really, really rich. Uh, and there are a lot of highly unequal societies, such as in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Latin America, that are also pretty poor. There's a big confound between affluence and, uh, not a perfect compound, obviously, but, uh, and between other factors such as um, education, such as gender equality, that a lot of good things go together. 
And the, the, the spirit level argument is that inequality is the one that causes all of the other good or bad things. And I, I, uh, the evidence to me suggests that that's, that's probably not true, that, uh, that education and affluence are uh, bigger drivers than, uh, than uh, inequality per se. Okay, let's go to the back. The ever-present existential crisis is really interesting. I just wondered how modern crises such as work being the most stressful thing ever at the moment or social media causing anxiety, in the worst cases suicides, how those sort of factor into this calculation? Yes, yeah, so I, I do have a chapter on, on happiness where I, um, I look at uh, that question. So um, suicide globally has gone down by about 40% over the last uh, several decades. Uh, the people who are under a misconception that, uh, that suicide rates are soaring and it's just, it's just not true. Uh, now, in particular sectors of the population, rates of suicide have gone up. In the United States as a whole, uh, suicide rates have been creeping up since 1999. Uh, on the other hand, they had crept down to reach that low point of 1999, and in earlier decades, both in Britain and the United States, the suicide rates were in fact uh, far higher. But if you were to identify the, the most global trend, it is for suicide rates to be going down. For mental health, it's, uh, it turns out to be a difficult uh, thing to evaluate, partly because uh, the average for, uh, for mental health conceals a lot of diversity for cohorts, for genders, for ages. And so some can go up while others go down. But, and by the fact that uh, because there's been an expanding empire of, uh, of psychotherapy, more people are being treated who may have, uh, have uh, uh, been left untreated in the past, and so we can think that there is more uh, depression even though we're just diagnosing more depression. The best data that, that I have found that, tries, uh, that try to, tries to apply a constant yardstick over time comes from the global burden of disease. It only goes back to uh, 1990, but it suggests that actually globally rates of uh, mental health are pretty flat. Uh, now that can conceal, again, a lot of churning in different sectors, but overall, it is not true that the world is getting more anxious, more clinically depressed, or more suicidal, as best we can tell. And in a majority of countries for which we have data over time, happiness has increased. Not all, but, but a majority. Can we get a microphone to this corner over here in the fourth row? Meanwhile, Alex, yeah, next to you. Yeah, Hi. go for it. Hi. Thank you. Um, I wonder why you completely ignore the concept of Eastern Enlightenment in both your talk and your book. Um, uh, which is the idea that we can change ourselves over the course of our lives by embodying values like compassion and humility, and whether the pride of academia, in your opinion, do you think that has a reason why academics don't accept Eastern intellectuals such as the Buddha? Because why are you not talking about the Buddha? Yes. Well, it's because... Um, <laughs> uh, there is a reason, because the book isn't about the word enlightenment. The word enlightenment is ambiguous. In fact, my editor uh, at first had some misgivings about using the word enlightenment because she thought people would confuse it with enlightenment in the Buddhist sense. Then she realized, well, if people do, great, more people will buy it. They'll, 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 be, they'll be disappointed when they crack it open. But uh, yes, 
Yeah. So uh, I, I, I have nothing You're against... You're not going to sell any copies now. They were gonna, yeah, yeah, maybe I should have, have, yes, I should have <laughs> left the cat out of the bag. So, yeah, I, I have nothing against enlightenment in the Eastern sense. That just, that's not, not what this book is about. The enlightenment here refers... I'm using the word in one of its two senses to refer to the cluster of ideals of reason, science, humanism, and progress. Let's do a cluster of questions over here. There's a gentleman with a mic in the fourth row, yeah, and then we'll get the microphone forward. Good afternoon, Mr. Binker. Welcome to London. Um, I was interested, you mentioned uh, briefly questionable research practices. Um, and I was interested in the light of the Phil Torres article, an academic on existential threats, who contacted various people cited in your book, including um, Eric Zensi, who you say is an engineer, but he's actually a political economist, and Kai Bird, a journalist, who felt you misrepresented the opinions they'd written in their original work to fit your hypothesis. What do you have to say to academics and specialists, there's more of them as well, who feel that you've misrepresented their work in your uh, book, Enlightenment Now? Oh, I, I would dispute that, uh, including uh, that particular accusation, which uh, actually consists of the fact that uh, the, the people that I quote don't agree with me on everything, and indeed they don't, but I never said that they did. Uh, when I reproduced a quote, I was attributing the quote to the person who, um, uh, who, who indicated it. I was uh, using an idea captured in that quote, which they meant and which I uh, endorsed. The fact that other things that they believe or other things that they said disagree with me is, is uh, irrelevant. So I think that that particular uh, person was tr uh, trying to undermine uh, uh, the book because he had devoted his career to uh, sowing fear about existential threats, many of which I discounted. And so uh, I think was, was uh, using rather, I think, disreputable accusations, ones that are, 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 are irrelevant, that when you quote someone, it doesn't mean that they agree with what you're saying in, in, uh, in all respects. It just means that you're attributing an idea to the person who first articulated it. And then, can we get a microphone to this gentleman in the front with glasses? And in the meantime, there's someone at the back with a microphone. Yep, go for it at the back. Yeah. Yeah, Hi. there you are, yeah. Could I just ask you what you think the... Um, sorry, where am I looking? At the back, this so it's very hard to see over there. It's on the left-hand side. Ah, very good, okay. yes, okay. Can I just ask you what you think the factors are that are drawing democratic societies around the world towards political strongmen, um, intolerant, aggressive, belligerent strongmen, not just Donald Trump, but whether it's Abe or Putin or Modi or Erdogan, the, the, there seems to be a trend, but do you think that's something intrinsic in our society at the moment? Yes, well, it is. It, it can't be a coincidence that it's happening in, in a number of countries. Uh, I think, in part, there, there is always a, an uh, undertow in democracies toward uh, aspects of human nature that tend to be tribalist, that tend to be authoritarian, that tend to be puritanical. Uh, and so liberal democracies always have to uh, make their case against that, that undertow from human nature. And, uh, and, and uh, for a number of reasons, have not been making that case as successfully as they ought to. Partly because of, uh, of um, genuine problems such as the Great Recession, such as the underemployment of uh, younger generations, because of, a, I think, of a lack of appreciation of the progress that, that we have made, which is uh, unknown to the vast majority of people, allowing the dystopian narratives of uh, strong men 
to, as they often do, to, to persuade people, that the non-authoritarians, the people who should be defending liberal democracy, have been kind of squeamish about doing so. And so you haven't had the champion, the charismatic champions of liberal democracy uh, to push back. But, but they do in some, in some countries, uh, with, uh, as with all politicians, with, with uh, huge ups and downs. But Macron, when he was elected, certainly had a, a swell of support. Uh, Justin Trudeau in uh, Canada, uh, Jacinda Ardern in, uh, in New Zealand, uh, Barack Obama in the United States. Uh, so the, and, and it's quite possible that among the new crop of uh, aspirants to the Democratic nomination, there are a number of uh, fairly uh, charismatic people who can uh, recreate that energy toward liberal democracy that I think has been uh, frittered away and, and will be needed to push back against these uh, authoritarian and uh, tribal forces. Okay, the gentleman in the front here. Yeah. Yes, Professor Pinker, thank you for your lecture tonight. I do have a question about uh, journalism since uh, it came earlier in your, in your talk here. Um, if, if we're saying that because there is some bias toward pessimism and, and things that make it to the news, what in your view would be uh, a way to get around that for journalists? What would, what would non-negative journalism look like? And I think Rajan was getting at that earlier too. Uh, also, what are your media consuming habits? How do you go about getting your, your news? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And I have to be, um, be clear that in uh, calling attention to features of journalism that I think have led to some distortions, uh, you know, on the whole, I'm massively respectful, grateful, uh, appreciative of, of, uh, of journalism, of uh, editors who <laughs> insist on, on fact-checking, on accuracy, on institutions that have reputations to defend based on their accuracy, of reporters that go out into trying dangerous situations to bring back facts about the world. I mean, I, I am in awe of, of uh, journalists. Uh, I think there are some built-in distorters of the world that come from the nature of journalism that can be counteracted. For, for example, uh, even in standard um, uh, journalistic outlets and papers, there are sections in which, uh, that are not driven by events or driven by negativity, but seek to get a constant readout of the state of the world, like sports pages. Uh, every day you read about your team, whether it wins or loses, and the standings are reported day in, day out. Uh, the financial pages. The commodities prices, the exchange rates, the, the, the share prices, the, the uh, uh, composites, they're reported uh, every day, regularly, rooted in data, not just in stories when something goes wrong, but a constant readout. The weather, you, good weather or bad weather, you always read about the weather. I, I would like to see more of a, kind of a dashboard of, of vital indicators of, um, uh, of, of society, of the the crime rate, the uh, uh, rate of death in warfare, CO2 emissions, uh, the, the poverty rate, uh, the rate of, um, uh, of accidents, both natural and in categories like plane crashes and drug overdoses. What if, if every week or every day or, every, or as often as the, the data come out, you had a kind of dashboard of the world and you had, and it was uh, alluded to, as, as we see in sports and in financial coverage, that when an event occurs, it is compared to the, uh, the overall trend. So when a plane crashes, 
we um, have a, a graph, which I have claimed that I have in the book and that I show in every talk, showing the rate of death for, in plane travel, which has gone massively down. Now, not to zero, as we've been reminded. Rate of death in natural disasters. When there's a, a, a crime or a terrorist attack, uh, I, I, I think that responsible journalistic coverage should put it in the perspective of how often those events uh, occur and whether they've been going uh, up, up or down. So that general background mindset of uh, putting events in the context of, uh, of um, uh, longer-term developments and in uh, reporting indicators of the world that are not just driven by discrete events. Uh, I, I would like to see more of that. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to try and rattle through the questions. At the back there, I'll tell you a couple from over here, and I know there's some over there, but at the back, let's try and do this quickly. Yep. Hi, um, thank you very much. Really interesting. Um, as you've mentioned, um, enlightenment and progress and all that kind of thing tends to go hand in hand with globalization, which obviously in many ways is hugely beneficial for humanity. I was wondering if you could say something about the concerns of people like Nassim Taleb and that kind of folks who are worried about the extent to which um, increasing interconnectedness of humanity in some ways makes society less robust to certain kinds of major emergent events or uh, effects that are really hard to foresee. Is that something we should be worried about? Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we certainly should be worried about issues like cybersecurity, like pandemics. Uh, and uh, threats that are not so much a result of, of, of uh, connectedness, but just because of overall power, like the threat of nu nuclear war. Uh, and I deal with all of those, uh, those in the book. We should, um, it's not clear that we've become more vulnerable, uh, because in the past, uh, if there was a crop failure, there would be a famine. Now, if there's a crop failure, you just ship food in from somewhere else in, in the country. In the past, there could be uh, pandemics like the Spanish flu, like the Black Death. Uh, now, uh, vaccines can be developed uh, very quickly, as in uh, Ebola. There are global health networks that can contain um, outbreaks before they become epidemics or uh, pandemics. Uh, we have uh, molecular biology and genetic engineering and synthetic biology and the the least capacity in theory to deal with biological threats far better than we, we uh, did in the past. So I think it's a mistake to say that we're newly uh, vulnerable, at least the evidence so far suggests we aren't. But at the same time, it is obviously uh, prudent to, uh, to, to worry about uh, large and systemic threats, such as a uh, breakdown of uh, the infrastructure of the internet or the possibility of, uh, of uh, epidemics and pandemics. Over here, yeah, second row. Okay, so um, this question is related to cognition and uh, is related to um, well-being and suffering. Uh, in your books, you mention the ghost in the machine and the homunculus, but, um, or what Sam Harris will call the illusory self. He says that if you search for the self introspec uh, introspectively, you'll see that is not there, and this could lead to an experience free of the self, which tracks closer to reality, and it goes on to explain how this could reduce suffering. Do you think that that's even possible? And what do you think is happening during this process of introspection? Um, I just wanted to know here if you're agreeing with Sam Harris and with your background of uh, visual perception. Well, it, it is certainly true that the, a lot of our, our, our folk theory of our own consciousness, which Dan Dennett has called the, uh, the, the Cartesian theater, the homunculus seated in a theater 
uh, observing the contents of consciousness. That there, there's every reason to think that that, is, that, it's, that folk theory is, a, is an illusion, that consciousness uh, consists of multiple streams of information going on simultaneously, uh, that, um, that uh, a lot of our uh, metacognition about our own awareness is mistaken. We think that we uh, see things that, that, that we don't, that we construct uh, a coherent experience out of fragments coming in from, from the senses. Uh, and there, there may be ways of uh, training oneself to become more, uh, more aware of one's own uh, consciousness with all of its foibles and uh, um, self-defeating um, aspects that we, be, we can become more uh, self-aware. Whether it takes place as, as um, Sam Harris and uh, uh, others, Robert Wright, Yuval Noah Harari advocate of training oneself in meditation. Um, well, I, I, I'm open to that. I, I myself am not a meditator. Maybe I should be. Maybe be, I'd be a, a less anxious and more mindful if I did. I haven't gone that way, but, uh, but I, I'm open to data suggesting that, that, that uh, people can improve their lives in that way. Can we just quickly go to the gentleman in the black, uh, the back, we yeah, have blue with the glasses. Um, get that microphone to him, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, surely, Dr. Pinker, there is a methodological flaw in your argument. Um, you identify areas of improvement such as human welfare, reduced child mortality, longer life expectancy, etc., and these are tangible improvements without question. But we also have the existential threats which you mentioned, but we have no way of quantifying that or aggregating it with the improvements, which is what you seem to be doing to arrive at an overall conclusion that progress has been made. And I would suggest you cannot aggregate these things. To leave it as you did as problems to be solved rather leaves them hanging and unquantifiable. Surely you cannot argue that we have made progress when you cannot quantify these ex existential risks which may finish us. Well, we, uh, you can if uh, there's an alternative uh, recent history where we have the existential threats but in which global poverty has increased, in which warfare has increased, and in which um, illiteracy has increased. So the, it is certainly true that the incremental progress doesn't uh, give you a way to estimate the, the tail risks. The, um, uh, uh, but on the other hand, they are, are a source of information that we ought to take into account. And if you're uh, a world that has uh, fewer wars, less likelihood of escalation uh, to war, is a world that, in which the probability of a catastrophic war, although we don't know what it is, presumably, as best we can tell, is lower than a world in, that had, say, had the same rate of warfare that we saw in the, in the late 1940s. Likewise, uh, a world in which uh, deaths of infectious disease just keep increasing or stay the same, uh, while it, we don't have certainty as, about the likelihood of a pandemic, the fact that looking at the data we see that we've made progress against infectious disease suggests that we've also made progress against uh, the uh, tail risk of uh, pandemics. Uh, so yes, it's true that we, that we have no way of aggregating the incremental progress and the, um, the, the tail risk into a single number, that we just don't have enough uh, data because the uh, tail almost by definition is one where data are scanty and estimation uh, starts to fail. But uh, as best as we can 
uh, think about these, these risks. The fact that the, uh, what, what we can measure suggests that they've become less likely uh, is something that we have to take into account as opposed to uh, the, the world in which they went in, in uh, the opposite direction. Uh, and again, as I, I noted before, it's not as if catastrophic risks uh, didn't exist in the past. Uh, and by, um, uh, we know that there were uh, epidemics, there were wars that today we would call world wars that were massively more destructive than anything we've, we've uh, experienced in recent decades. It doesn't mean they can't occur, but it does mean that we can't automatically conclude that they've become more likely. I was hoping we'd end on an optimistic note, and I think we almost did. Um, Stephen is going to be signing uh, books outside. Is that right? You are. And yes. regardless of whether or not you believe in the Enlightenment, you should support Newham Bookshop because it's absolutely wonderful. So please do buy a copy. And before that, please thank Stephen Pinker. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. I really appreciate it. Thank you.